Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Brothers and sisters, welcome to a day together in God's word to learn from God, to magnify God, to glorify God together. Let's pray. Almighty God, ruler and reigner over all things, teach us today by your Holy Spirit, instruct us in your word. May we learn from you, learn more about who you are and your word and your creation and your purpose for mankind, your purpose for your children here on this earth so that we can embrace your purpose. We can embrace your call for our life. That we would not chase our own desires, but that we would find our identity and our purposes in you alone. Pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Folks, today we're going to look at family and the idea and the reality. It's not just an idea of your descendants, where you came from, your participation in your family, and the descendants after you, your lineage, your legacy. The Bible is full of genealogies. It's full of the chronology of the history of our faith through God's story of mankind. And God set this forth. God set forth creation. God set forth the multiple generations. We touched briefly on this last week in chapter 4, when Adam and Eve beget Abel and Cain. And now we're going to look further into this in chapter 5 and further into genealogies and why not only why this is important for us to read as Christians, but how much we can glean from what God is doing through his story of mankind and his story of faith in his people. Get a little closer to the microphone here. If you have your Bible, please open it to Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, as we read together. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. 930 years. Folks, this is a very long time. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. 105 years, that's also quite, quite a long time before having a child for us today. I guess not back then. 
When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech, 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, a father, folks, at 500 Guess his wife was probably somewhere in that ballpark. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 500 years old to be a father, and perhaps that old as a mother. Lifetimes were completely different back then. It's amazing. God's story. God's story. Well, this chapter, chapter 5, According to historian spans about, you read, what do we have here? About seven generations, and you think, okay, seven generations times 40. But that's not how long people lived back then. We don't count generations in Genesis chapter 5, obviously, like generations are commonly counted today by interval of somewhere around 40 years. And there were times in the Bible where people lived about 40 years. We see this in Exodus. But in this part of Genesis, people not only lived a very long time, but they waited to have children <laughs> until a pretty long time. Noah was 500 years old when he became a father. So this spread, according to historians, just in chapter 5, spans about 1,656 years 
from the days of creation until approaching the flood. And next week, we will get into chapter 6 and following, talking more about the life and the story of God through the life of Noah. Matthew Henry, in his commentary regarding Genesis chapter 5, said this, All the patriarchs here, except Noah, were born before Adam died, so that from him they might receive a full and satisfactory account of the creation, paradise, the fall, the promise, and those divine precepts which concerned religious worship and a religious life. And if any mistake arose, they might have recourse to him while he lived, as to an oracle for the rectifying of it. And after his death, to Methuselah and others that had conversed with him, that is Adam. So great was the care of Almighty God to preserve in his church the knowledge of his will and the purity of his worship. See, in chapter 5 here, we have a lot of contemporaries with each other. They were in relationship with each other for, let's look at these lifetimes here. 930 years, Adam. Seth, 912 years. Enosh, 905 years. Kenan, 910 years. Mahalalel, 895 years. Jared, 962 years. Enoch had a shorter lifespan. And we'll get to that, 365 years. Methuselah, 969 years. Lamech, 777 years. And Noah, 950 years. So depending on how old they were, and we just read it, when they became a father of their son or their first son for the lineage of their family, many of these men and families lived together. I'm not saying that they lived right next to each other. I'm saying they were alive at the same time on the earth and they could have this relationship with each other and follow God together. This is what God's purpose is for in family. So many purposes, but I believe this is the primary purpose. So that we, as family, can follow God together. What else do we see in this historical genealogy? Well, some familiar names pop up. And if you're like me, when I first saw these names on the first reading, I'm thinking, is this the same as chapter 4? Is this guy the same as chapter 4? Well, let's look at this. Firstly, the Enoch mentioned here is a different Enoch than the one mentioned in chapter 4. The former Enoch was a son of Cain who did not offer an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. And the Enoch mentioned here is obviously a righteous follower of God, so much so that we see a break in the repetition of the language for his description. Something quite remarkable happened to this man. The other familiar name here is Lamech. The Lamech mentioned here in chapter 5 is a different Lamech than the one mentioned in chapter 4. We talked about him before, chapter 4. The former was a descendant of Cain who had two wives in violation of God's command. This is the first example of polygamy that we have recorded in the Bible. 
So he had two wives in violation of God's command. He killed a man in revenge in violation of God's command, and he boasted that he would be better than Cain or greater than Cain. But it seems that in the language that he used, he really described himself as more pompous than Cain or perhaps more evil than Cain. And the latter Lamech mentioned here in chapter 5, which we just read, was of the line of Seth and of the faithful Enoch and Methuselah, and was he who fathered Noah. So perhaps these two names are popular names at that time in the world, and that is why we see the repetition. So what do we see in a, the recording of a genealogy? I see lives of men and women, but namely described here as head of household or head of the line in, within each family of the men who are born into this earth, like us today. We are humans born onto the earth. And just like being born onto the earth and living, we die from this earth. There is a beginning and there is an, an end to our life on this earth. We are mortal. And we only live each continual day at the good pleasure of the Creator God. He is not only the creator and the author of life and the reclaimer in death from life because he is the author and the creator of life, but he is also the sustainer of life. You would not have oxygen in your lungs at this very moment. You would not be able to speak another word if it were not for God's sustaining power in your life and in my life. We spoke before in Genesis 2 or Genesis 3, Genesis 2, I believe. Yes, Genesis 2, in speaking about the creation of Adam, in verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. It is the Lord who enables us in every single way to have life. It is the Lord who enables us to breathe. It is the Lord who enables us to inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. It is the Lord who enables blood to be pumped through our heart, to be oxygenated in our heart, and then to bring oxygen to the other parts of the body, and then to bring the blood back to the heart to be cycled again. This is the Lord's design. It is only by the Lord that you have movement and have your being, Scripture said. It is, it is only through the Lord that you have a mind that can think and process and deduce and imagine. It is only from the Lord. So our life on earth is only at his good pleasure because God is the creator of life and the reclaimer at death. And we live only at his choosing. I think one of the great lies of mankind is that you are in charge of your own life. And to some extent, because of free will in so many areas, you do have autonomy. But you and I and everyone else is not in charge. 
of your life. That is God, and God is sovereign over all things that he has made. So my question to us in our mortality, in our knowledge that the Lord God is the creator of all things, and the Lord God is the one who created us, and the Lord God is the one who sustains us every single day, and the Lord God is the one who will reclaim his children at the end of our days to heaven, and to those who do not know him, they will be claimed to be apart from God forever. My question to us is this. How do we live our days? You either set up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where gold and silver will be corroded and destroyed by fire, where they will not follow you after your death on earth. You cannot take it with you. And whatever you're chasing, fame, greed, status, career, money, whatever it is, will perish. Or you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, where everything that you do for the kingdom of God has eternal value and eternal worth, and yes, that will carry with you after your death on this earth because it is eternal, because it is for the kingdom of God. God says, do not waste your days. Do not get distracted. Do not, do not turn to the left or turn to the right, but stay on the straight and narrow path that leads to life. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. What else do we see in genealogies? We see family. God has given us a family even if you were born an orphan or became an orphan or your family was taken from you or what have you. God has still put people into your life to be in friendship, to be in relationship with you for positive reasons. And if you don't have anyone in your life at this very moment, you may very soon. And that will probably be through a church. Because God followers tend to invest themselves and be committed to the church, as God calls us to do. To gather together with other believers, whether that's in a physical building or not. But God's people are called to be together by God for the purpose of meeting together, for the purpose of doing life together. We see this described intimately in the beginning chapters of Acts. And this is a story for, this is an example for all Christians. We do not do life alone. God's gospel into our life is not for us alone. To have an individual relationship with God and not be invested in others. What did Jesus say? The law and the prophets can be summarized in this. Two commands. One, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And two, what was it? The second is like it, he said. What was it? To love your neighbor as yourself. And our neighbor, first and foremost, is our brother and sister in Christ in the church. 
We need to do life with other Christians. We need to get out of our comfort zone. We need to get out of this COVID comfort zone where we've been lulled to sleep by all of these other forces, which are not good, where we've been lulled to isolation, which is not good. God has never been about isolating. His children are never to be isolated. Even in prison, Paul was writing letters to the church. Paul was talking about the church. He was encouraging the church. He was calling out the church in certain areas. And he was saying, stop giving into sin. God calls you to holiness. And the church was sending members to visit him in prison. Even prison, he didn't let that be an excuse. God does not want his children to be isolated. So if you don't have any family member in your life right now, I'm talking blood family member, or if you don't have any friends specifically in your life, pray for them because I'm quite sure God is bringing someone into your life very soon. This is how God works. God doesn't leave his children alone for very long. And especially God works in the hearts of his children. But if God has given you a physical family, like these genealogies describe, let's look at this for a second. Family is about togetherness. Now, I'm not saying if you had dissension in your family, you had discord in your family, you had fights in your family, you had drunkenness in your family, what have you, that caused a quote-unquote broken home. I'm saying in how God created family, it is to be about togetherness. And we even saw a disruption in the very first family, Adam and Eve with Cain and Abel. Abel offered a good sacrifice to the Lord that was regarded by the Lord. And then his brother Cain kills him. That disrupts and causes all sorts of chaos into a family right there. And then Cain is sent off because of what he had done. That's a broken home right there. But God brings reconciliation in many, many, many areas to broken homes. And it begins with us. Are we changed by the love of God? Are we changed by what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us, so that our view on love, so that our view for our siblings, for our parents, for our children is changed. That there is not an expiration date on your love to them. That, uh, that there is no end to your forgiveness to them. They came to Christ and said, how many times should I forgive my brother? What did he say, seven times? And Christ said, 70 times seven. Or if you're counting, that's 490 times. But the example, because seven is a biblical number, it's an illustrative number, and so is 70, that you may see in the footnote in your Bible, it says times without number, i.e. God is so forgiving of us. God forgives us when we sin over and over and over and over and over again, times without number. Because of what Christ has done for us, we need to have this same level of forgiveness for those who sin against us. Because what is the greater sin? 
Is it how your brother or your sister sinned against you in whatever area that is, or your transgression before God Almighty, who dwells outside of time, who created you, who sustains you, who calls you to holiness, who calls you to obey his commandments, and then you break it, and that should result in your death and in my death, but God had a plan. And God sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sin and to be resurrected so that we could be resurrected and not die in our sin. God's forgiveness to you is so much greater than any forgiveness you could offer to anyone else on this earth. So God says, be always forgiving and seek to have peace with those in your family, with those who are friends, with those in your life. God's plan for the family is togetherness, and it is to worship him. And you may have atheists in your family, and you may have kids who were raised in the church and you did everything you could and they walked away from the faith. And they may be refusing God and they may not be acknowledging God and they might want they might want to have nothing to do with God. And God calls you to have togetherness with them, not to believe what they believe, but to reach out to them on a continual basis in love and in kindness. And if they have wronged you or you've wronged them in forgiveness, because we are to be the example of God's love to them in this world. And perhaps by your ever-present love and kindness and forgiveness toward them, they will see that and see how different that is from the rest of the world and all their other relationships in this world and come back to God. That God's choosing would get a hold of them, shake them, and they would come back to God. And that God would call them out from a pattern of unbelief or a lack of forgiveness, or a lack of love, or from whatever that they are into. God calls us to seek them out. And if you have the ideal home where everyone has a good relationship with each other, then praise God, because that is a blessing from God in so many ways. And God calls us to be unified, to be people of unity, to be peacemakers, to sow in peace, because the Bible says we'll raise a harvest of righteousness when we sow in peace. That's like sowing a seed is the example. If you're not a farmer, not a gardener, describe that a little bit. So those who make peace will receive peace. There will be a harvest of righteousness, of godliness, of loving behavior. Speaking of love, Within the context of family, we are to have a spirit of love for one another. What does love do? Love does not, first of all, we don't define what love is as an individual. Our culture is so messed up today. There is a movement in our culture and in the American society to do away with all history and all tradition and all of the church's values. The love is whatever we say it is. The love is love or, or some crap like that. 
No, God defines what love is. And unless we have deference to God in the way that we love, then we are not loving. If we do not have worship of God in the way that we love, then we are not loving. God will be worshiped and we will be obeying the commandments of God, i.e. the Bible is our authority and our preface before we love, however we love, because the Bible defines what love is and the Bible defines how we are to love other people. You know, the word says that Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved, the Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We talked about that a few chapters ago in Genesis. The men are called to lead their wives in godliness, in holiness, not in anything sinful that's forbidden, in humility in Christ's likeness. This is love. Christ is our example. We are to have a spirit of humility in our family. Whether you're a father or husband or wife or mother or child or grandfather or grandmother, whatever your role is in your family, God calls you to have a heart of humility, to have a heart of worship. Why do we have the family? Why did God give us families, however big or small that they are, and whether they're filled with faith in God or they're not? Why do we have the family? One, God set it forth. <laughs> Two, it's about togetherness. We're not supposed to do life on earth by ourselves. We're not. I think people get very lost when they try to do life on their own all by themselves because the default mechanism is this. It starts with this. It starts with this thinking, no one else has helped me, so I'm all on my own. Okay, well, then I'm gonna do it all on my own. I don't need anybody else. I can do this all by myself. See how that switched from either reality at the beginning or blame shifting to absolute pride. You have to have the posture of humility before God in all things. Even if you're an entrepreneur in business by yourself and you work by yourself every single day and you're trying to make your business successful or whatever it is, or you're going to school by yourself, or you're an orphan and you have nobody else in your life, God still says you must have the heart of humility before me. And I believe that we must know whatever quote-unquote success we have in life is dependent, number one, on God, and two, it is dependent on other people. And I'm not saying that you define yourself specifically on what other people have done in your life, I'm saying do not get trapped in the concept that you need to do one, everything by yourself, and two, that whatever you have achieved, you have done all by yourself. Because that is a trap, and that is pride. And I think that's one of the gifts of the structure of the family 
is that there is this built-in, some families better than others, support. That you are doing life together. And even if that's just until people are old enough and then move out of the house, or whether you still have that type of relationship with your family after you all are adults, or whatever it is, God has given us each other. And if there are people in your life who do not proclaim Christ, and you do, then let your loving kindness and your encouragement be a light to them for reasons of the glory of God. Along with family, let's talk about truth. Why is truth important? Truth is important because it's like a compass. If we don't have truth, then we don't really know anything else. Is that fair to say? We don't know the direction to go because truth would then be a moving target. It would be anywhere and everywhere. And what would be missing in that is there would be no direction. There would be no foundation. There would be no stone at the base to build a building. So whether you're building a tower or whether you're building a home or whether you're building a life for yourself or a career or you're building your view on politics or you're building a government or whatever it is or a church, if you do not have truth, then what do you have? What is the purpose of life on earth without truth or without acknowledging the truth exists? Is there a purpose? I feel like these are some of the real hot buttons in our society, in our culture. The devil is working overtime to cause chaos and confusion and dissension and discord, disunity. He's working evil in all sorts of ways in the American society right now. Lawlessness is becoming greater and greater and greater, even among our officials. And the law, or the structure of the law, is being pushed to the wayside. And a society without law and order will cease to be a society. That's how it works. And a society that does not acknowledge truth is left to believe utterly anything. And I think that also will result in chaos, dissension, Discord, because if you have each individual in your society going around saying this truth, then I'm saying this is my truth. Okay, well, that's a huge flag on the field right there. God warns against that. We just talked about individual pride and how dangerous that is biblically. And you can't say this is my truth. What does Jesus say? In John 14, 6, Jesus makes the exclusive claim, I, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's word is true. God's word is truth. And God defines what truth is. There's a whole other aspect to truth that springs off of the Bible, and that is factual truths. 
everyday factual truths, i.e. that a color, for example, a color that a kid paints in class with, say, blue ink is blue. That's a color. That's, if blue ink is blue, then that is truth. Okay, that's a very basic example. That a dog is a dog. That's true. That a male dog is a male dog. That's true. A female dog is a female dog. That's true. You look at an automobile. If it's a four-door sedan, then you could say that's a car, or you could say that's a four-door sedan. That's true. And what the society is pushing and what Satan is pushing because he's a deceiver and he loves chaos is to not even believe factual truths anymore. And of course, all truth, again, has, its, it has at its foundation God's structure, God's word, the Bible, who God is. God defines truth. And what does truth, then, as God defines it, do to a dark world? It shows light. It gives structure. It gives purpose. It gives meaning. I think there's so many people in this world who are just wandering around trying to find anything in life to satisfy them. You read about King Solomon's diatribe on that in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is still true today. Thousands and thousands of years later, people are aimlessly wandering to fill their lives with anything that has pleasure or meaning or purpose, anything to give their life definition. They're trying to see some value in life. And God says, it's right here. It's in me. I'm the creator God of all things. I created you to have a relationship with me so that we could walk together every single day of your life and you could find all your meaning and purpose and fulfillment in me alone. And I'll show you how to do it. And that's in the word of God. God is our compass. God's truth shows us how to live our entire life. This is what truth does. It is an anchor in a world of chaos. And it also puts your life on a different trajectory, a very specific, singular trajectory to God. And that's even much more than just an anchor because God is giving you dynamic direction. And he says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I will give you life, and I will give you light, and I will give you purpose, and I will give you meaning, and I will give you love, and I will give you joy, and everything your heart desires, I will give you. Because I know what your heart desires. I created you. And I love you.
Let's look at something very similar to truth, and that is godliness. God has given us faith. And faith is the greatest part of your legacy. You do build a legacy every single day of your life, whether you are married or not, and whether you have children or not. And if you will be married later in your life or not, and if you and or will have children later in your life or not, you are building a legacy every single day of your life. For good or for bad, you're building a legacy. And that's the wondrous aspect about free will in this category is what are you, what are you going to do in your life? What are you going to do this day in your life for good or bad? How are you going to live your life? Are you going to live it to the glory of God today and put to death the things that are of death and are of sin and are of Satan and are of evil and are of darkness or are of the American culture or the society and the things that it values, which truly have no meaning, but there's great pressure to accept those things. Faith can be your legacy. And life without faith is really death. Because faith gives your life meaning. Faith gives your life identity. You can find your identity in him. You do not need to chase what the American society is saying can be your identity, or you can change your identity, or you can do whatever you want to do with your identity, or you can find your identity in something that's never been identifiable before. You can create your own identity, your new and unimagined identity, because you can be so special. <laughs> and God laughs. Your faith in God can give you your identity in him. And faith also testifies to God's greatness, to God's glory. In fact, it requires you to surrender yourself, your claims to your pride, to quote-unquote your truth or your pursuits outside of God. It requires you. Faith in God requires you in looking to God to not look to yourself, to find your identity in him. To be a Christian is to be of Christ, to be in Christ, not to be of Bryce or in Bryce. I'm not trying to be in and of myself. No, I'm trying to put that to death every day to glorify God, to be a Christian who is in Christ, who is of Christ. It requires humility to pursue God instead of yourself. And the more that you humble yourself, the more that you think this in your mind, the more that you feel this in your heart, the greater your faith will grow in God. Let's look at the verses uh, 21 through 24 again. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. 
Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. These verses here, this is the disruption in the lineage, in the genealogy. Do these, did these others also believe in God? Yes, I think they did. I think this line was faithful to God. But what do we see that was different in the life of Enoch? It says specifically that he walked with God. Makes me think of Genesis 2, how God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. That is descriptive of a close and abiding relationship with man and with God together. And it doesn't just say it once here, it says it twice. It says in verse 22 that Enoch walked with God. And then in verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Well, what we know is there's no language here that says he died. So for those who have been in the church for a while and have read Genesis before, you probably read all sorts of different commentaries on this and exactly what happened to him and or how it happened I couldn't tell you for sure, but what I know is God took him and he was not on the earth. That is what we see here. We see that Enoch was faithful in relationship with God, that he was a righteous man, meaning he believed and obeyed the commandments of God. Was he perfect? Was he sinless? No. We have no reason to believe that and no human on earth except for Jesus Christ has been sinless because he was God. That was the secret to how and why he was sinless. Jesus was the perfect example for how to live a human life in obedience and glory to God the Father. And he showed us how to live. But what we see here with Enoch is that he prioritized a relationship with God, so much so that it was a daily, like a walking companion, living life together with God. And let this be an example to each one of us, that we would have this mindset of Christ, who constantly lived his life, and you can read it in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, about how he constantly was in conversation, in prayer with God the Father, and he was living his life by obeying God's commandments and proclaiming God's glory and God's greatness and God's truth to the world. This is our call as well. Related to godliness is kindness. I talked a little bit about this before. But kindness breeds, that's a fun word, breeds unity. That was the word that I came up with, that it breeds unity. It begets unity. And this is not like the world anymore. I would say that there was more kindness in decades past and generations past. And obviously, there's been ups and downs through different parts of human history. But in certain societies and certain cultures, kindness has been valued at other levels. God's kindness to man in his love to man is unmatched. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 
that even though God had full knowledge of the future, God created man, knowing that Adam and Eve would sin against him and be banished in the garden. He knew all that in advance. He knew Cain was going to murder his brother Abel for bringing a right sacrifice before the Lord and being accepted before the Lord. And Cain was not, his sacrifice was not accepted before the Lord. That said, the Lord did not have regard for Cain's sacrifice. And out of his anger, which was unrighteous, he murdered his brother, which was unrighteous. Because Cain was not seeking to please or honor the Lord by living according to God's commandments. It does not seem that our world prioritizes kindness. But kindness, again, requires humility. It's very much like love because it's driven by love. Kindness will bring healing in your family. Your choice to embrace kindness and pursue kindness and give kindness and show kindness to the people in your life, it will bring healing in your marriage. I'm not saying that there aren't other things. I'm saying it will be a force for healing. It will bring fruitfulness in your workplace. Is there stress in your workplace? Do you have stress at work? Do you have stress with your coworkers, with your boss? Be kind. It's so, it seems so much in our culture to, that it's a dog-eat-dog world. You got to pull yourself up. You got to go out and get it. Get what's yours. Get more, get more, get more. Doesn't matter who you hurt, who you step on. And so many are living their lives that way. But are you letting other people's definition of how to live or how to do business define how you're going to live or do business in the same workplace? No fellow brother and sister, be different, be Christ-like, so that your Christ-likeness would show through to them and testify to the greatness of God, that they too would love God and turn from their ways. Kindness will also bring healing in your friendships. It seems like as you continue to live and as you continue to be introduced to more people and have more people in your life, you notice how many friendships are broken by either hurt or sin or dissension or gossip, whatever it is. But kindness will bring healing to that situation. I'm not saying it will fully heal. It depends on what it was. But it will be a force for healing. God loved us first. God showed us his kindness first. And our call is to show God's love to the world. Again, we're not coming up with our own definition of love. We are submitting ourselves to God's definition of love. And this is not the world's definition of love. The world says, love what, whatever you feel, whatever you think love is, whatever you create love to be. Love is love, they say. Just love is love and, and whatever emotion that is, whatever pleasure, whatever you're seeking, whatever you desire, it's just love. It's just love. But that's not love. I think God says love is absolute. 
love doesn't put conditions on love. I mean, it it does in terms of God's commandment, God's covenant language. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you worship me, if you obey my commandments, then all of these good things will happen. This is God's commandment language, God's covenantal language. That if you do this, then this will happen. That if you do not obey my commandments, then our relationship's going to be broken. But God still loves his people. So though the covenant, though the commandments have repercussions for disobedience, and they have blessings for obedience, God still loves his people. Scripture says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life in him. We ought to take our definition of love and our embracing of love from God's definition of love, from God's unconditional love. This is how we are to show love to other people. We are not to love as the world loves. We are to love in light of the scripture on a completely other level, like a brother and a sister love in holiness to the world, especially to our family, especially to those in the church, and especially to those in our social circles and friendships, because we are testifying to God's greatness. We are a living testimony like Enoch is here in the lineage and the genealogy in chapter five. We're reading this how many thousands of years later after he lived that scripture was written down? He is testifying to us obedience to God and how to walk in godliness. And we can be an example to other people by how we live and how we embrace God's word. I think one of the greatest lessons you can teach your family is self-discipline. Parents to children, obviously that's the one that first comes to mind, even siblings to each other or even children to parents. Anyone in your household is a living and active example to the other people in your household. Now, this can be two ways. This can be either for good or not for good. But every single person in your household sees in every other family member something either to emulate or something that they do not want to do, something that they should not do. If it's sinful, if they're living a life of sinfulness, then this is something that they should not do. But a child can look to their father and see a life of humility and a life of godliness and a life of appropriate and loving kindness and gentleness and respect. And to be honest, now there may be a minimum age for this, but a father can also look to their son or their daughter and see these things. And that can be a testimony to him about loving obedience to God, God's glory, and what he should be doing 
if he has not been doing it. If he is also living a life of godliness, then they are a mutual encouragement and affirmation to each other. Even as a young child, if they're living in godliness, they are a testimony of the goodness of self-discipline to the glory of God. I think this is another reason that God gives us the family. It is self-discipline, which defers to God's authority. It says, God dictates how I'm going to live my life. God dictates how I'm going to live a life of discipline. That I am to run from sin. That I'm to value the things of God. That I'm to value the commandments of God. That I'm to value God's word, to be in God's word, to read God's word, to know God's word, so that faith begets faith, so that encouragement begets encouragement, so that hope begets hope. This is what happens when you're in the word of God, so that you embrace the kingdom of heaven, so that you're of the things of the kingdom of God, and that we define love then as God defines love not as temporary feelings or fleeting passions or sexuality or gender confusion, but defines love by God's definition of love. And when we are in the word of God, when we hold it up as our authority, that's what happens. And now I want to close with a few scriptures. The first is from Isaiah 47, starting at verse 8. Isaiah says, now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. It says, these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, quote unquote, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Conversely, excuse me, that was Isaiah 47, 8 through 11. Conversely, let me read from 1 John. This is chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected. In love. See, folks, God defines love. God sets the standard 
Jesus Christ came to earth to be a living, tangible, human imaging, human image example. He was a human and he showed us as a human how to walk in godliness, how to walk in love. And that is in deference to God the Father. That is in deference and magnifying the word of God. Glorifying God by obeying his commandments and embracing the definition of love that God gives and then showing God's love to the world. Let's pray. Great and mighty God, great in love, mighty in power. The one who created man's mind and man's heart and man's bodies You have given us work to do on this earth. And as we are given work to do, as we are given birth from a human mother, we have family in some respect. And whether that's a literal, physical, tangible family or whether we are born or lived in an orphanage. And family is a little bit harder to see at the forefront. But God, you define who we are. You give us identity. You show us love as a loving father. If we did not know a loving father in our life on earth, you have shown us a loving father. And you are the perfect example of that love. Jesus Christ, you showed us a life on earth displayed in love to God the Father. And you showed us a life on earth to love one another to to love each other because that makes much of how God created us in your image and after your likeness and that we are now to live a life in glory to you, to live a life proclaiming Jesus Christ to the world, to live a life of humility and loving kindness because you are good. Holy Spirit, well up in us. Fill us up with the things of God. Fill us up with the love of God so that we would not chase anything of lesser value in this world, but that we would find our value, our worth, our identity, our fulfillment, all of our longings in you alone. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue with the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. 